Welcome to the Vault Podcast. Classic music reviews presented by IV Creative. Now, here's your hosts, B. Cox and the crew. A very pleasant greetings and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Vault Podcast. Classic music reviews presented by IV Creative. It's a perspective on the classics from a fresh point of view. We appreciate you for taking your time and lending your ears to our perspective. You could be anywhere listening to anything, but you're right here with us, so we thank you. With you today is yours truly, B. Cox, and yes, y'all, I'm back. I'm back once again. Sorry for the absence. A brother had a few life-changing things happen, including the purchase of my first home with my fiance. so we are very happy about that, but it was very hectic. I had to take some time away, take care of home get some things squared away but i appreciate all you for sticking out there with me continuing to listen and pull up the vault and showing the love on social media as always we appreciate y'all for going on this journey with us as always as well but we're right back here and we're here of course to give you our take on the classics as always flying solo today but it's all good shout out to the crew damo jo wherever they're at they'll be back here to come chop it up with me once again we're going to keep things rolling and this return to the vault And we got a good one here today, as the vault returns. As you know what we say here in the vault, our motto is hashtag open the vault, hashtag nothing but the classics of NBTC. And today we're going to go back 30 years ago to 1991. And we're going to take you to the second studio album of possibly the most interesting group in hip hop. And that's De La Soul for many, many different reasons. Their second studio album, De La Soul is Dead. Those of you who remember, who have been with us since the beginning, know that we did in our fifth or sixth episode, the classic debut album of De La Soul, which was Three Feet High and Rising. This is their second album. And we discussed, of course, the problems that they've had with their former label, Tommy Boy, not making the majority of their work available on streaming sources, which has made many of their fans on the internet and on social media very upset. But we still continue to listen to their music, be it through YouTube or be it through a playlist on Spotify, other playlists people have curated elsewhere to try to get those De La Soul tones that we love so much. And interesting because I think that this takes yet another turn in their discography and in their catalog. In 1991, where the landscape was in hip hop was definitely starting to change, and they definitely had a message to get out there as they saw that the seas were getting ready to change in the game. But De La Soul, y'all, De La Soul is dead in 1991, released on May 14th, 1991, recorded between 90 and 91 in Calliope Studios in Brooklyn, New York, with a runtime, an ambitious runtime of that time at 73 minutes and 30 seconds, of course, on Tommy Boy and Warner Brother Records, the producers themselves, De La Soul and Prince Paul, who also produced their debut Three Feet High and Rising. And they had a few things that they needed to get off their chest on this album. So it's interesting because uh, we'll go a little bit into it as we get into the background of the album, because I think that this is part of the ever changing narrative with De La Soul. And I'll say it now and say it many times to me, I've never seen a group like them that has stayed consistent, but evolved as each album has gone on, especially in their first four albums that run from three feet high out to stakes is high. Uh, I think that none of the albums that I've mentioned in those and the one that we haven't mentioned before is Balloon Mind State, which is the third album. But 
there's a little bit of a change in De La as each one of those albums comes along, but they're still at their core, the same group. But the evolution, ever so subtle, is there. So, more information about the singles. A roller skating jam named Saturday, which featured a Q-tip of a tribe called Quest. Ring, 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 ha, ha, hey. And Millie pulled a pistol on Santa, B-side of Keeping the Faith. Interesting song that Millie pulled a pistol on Santa. Many different songs on here from a storytelling perspective. Definitely give the album a bit of depth, if I could say so. But this track list, very ambitious. As I mentioned, the runtime, 73 minutes and 30 seconds. 27 tracks on this record, including a number of different skits. A couple of the skits being a couple of homeboys who stole finding a De La Soul is Dead album in the trash and then listening to it and arguing amongst each other about the quality of the album, whether it was trash, whether it was dope. And then also the radio station skit of WRMS interspersed between these different skits and all of these tracks on here. But 27 tracks in all with skits included. Some guest spots, uh, like I said, Q-Tip of Tribe Call Quest, but then also Dress from Black Sheep. Also checked in, a member of the Native Tongues Posse as well. So um, not a lot of artist features, but, you know, still a very interesting and very complex record, if I may say so. I do have to say, in reading about De La Soul is Dead, the one thing that I see the variety of opinions of people have when they come to comparing it to Three Feet High and Rising, and I'll get into my personal opinion of what I think. Uh, coming into looking at the various articles, I saw an article on albumism about the 30-year anniversary of De La Soul is Dead. Also, um, there was an article that uh, Panama Jackson of Very Smart Brothers from The Root also wrote as well, saying that it was the first album that he fell in love with. And there are a lot of folks, if you're a De La Soul fan in particular, that will have that debate of Three Feet High and Rising versus De La Soul is Dead. It's an interesting debate to have. But each album has their merits. They both stand on their own. Now to sort of go back into the perspective in which De La was coming with. Now, everyone remembers the fallout that came from Three Feet High and Rising. De La Soul was being, you know, termed as these flower children and, you know, bohemian in nature and, you know, that they were hippies. As a matter of fact, there's something that they speak on in one of the tracks on here where uh, they address what happened to them when they went on the Arsenio Hall show, where Arsenio Hall introduced them as the hippies of hip hop. Well, I think they felt disrespected by that, and they also felt disrespected by the way they were being portrayed in the game by a lot of people. And I think this was an album that was made to counteract, you know, that stereotype of them. And the cover sort of portrays that. As a matter of fact, that famous cover of the daisies wilting and with the flower pot being knocked over is meant to refer to the death of Daisy, the track from Three Feet High, Daisy standing for the inner sound, y'all, that age, and distancing themselves from that sort of stereotype, that what people associated them with. But there was also something else happening in the game as well. Gangsta rap was on the rise in hip-hop. It started in the late 80s, popularized by a lot of folks, especially Ghetto Boys and NWA. It started as the West Coast started to gain more of a foothold into the game. This is on the advent soon of the Bay Area coming into prominence, into Southern California and Death Row Records coming into prominence, DJ Quick coming into prominence, 
that where we would see that the game was shifting away from what we saw it, that thing that common talks about. And I used to love her, how the game sort of changed to moving more towards against the rap affiliation. That was what was more popular. People weren't listening to the, a lot of the more positive messages that were present in hip hop in the mid to late eighties, starting to go a little bit more aggressive. And I think they also fought back against that as well. And you can hear that in some of the lyrics when you listen to that. So I think that this was their strike back, almost like the Empire Strikes Back. When you talk about Star Wars, this is De La striking back. And they declared on this that De La Soul is dead. Now, when I first ended up listening to De La Soul is dead, I had to be, I want to say, in the fifth or sixth grade. It would have been a couple of years after it had come out. And as I mentioned before, my older sisters, when they did listen to hip hop, they were big fans of the native tongue. So they listened to Tribe Called Quest, listened to Moni Love, listened to Queen Latifah, Black Sheep, and De La Soul was a part of that. So I listened to this at first when I was probably about in the fourth, fourth grade or so, maybe fifth grade or so, and didn't really get it that much. I gave it another listen after I dug deeper into their catalog after Artificial Intelligence Bionics. And at that point, I had been in listen to stakes is high listen to three feet high and rising listen to balloon mind state and was truly respected day law for what the work that they had done and was amazed i think from the samples that i heard on this and then doing my research afterwards i found that there were over 100 samples used in these 27 different tracks which is <laughs> crazy an article that i was reading actually compared it as well to the work that the Bomb Squad did on a couple of different records, namely on the year before Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet, which also featured a number of different samples. And the wording that I that they used in describing Fear of a Black Planet was that they were creating a sonic wall of sound, which is almost similar to what they did here. Definitely not as hard-hitting or as aggressive but or explosive, but contained to a certain extent. And again, props to DJ Paul for the work that he did with Daylight in their very early days. Uh, I think it was about as good a fit as any producer or group of producers could do with the group, especially a group like Daylight. So over 100-something samples, <laughs> you can hear a lot of them. It's almost like your mind takes you in so many different places as you're listening to them. And visiting it again this week by just going to who sampled and checking out the samples, the ones that they could pull from here, was uh, amazing and uh, having heard a number of those different different records from the Isley brothers to Joe sample to a lot of different other artists that they pulled from on here. It really just kind of blew my mind. The work that was being done during that time, considering the technology that was being used. So always interesting to go back and look at the sample work that was done on any type of record during this particular time. Another thing that also kind of took a turn as well was their, I think, their creativity and their lyricism of all three of De La Soul, of Posnus, of Dave, and also of Maceo. And I thought that it was a pretty good balance, especially between Maceo and Posnus, to really sort of carry the burden of the lyricism on this album. It's, um, it was definitely a little bit of a step up from what I heard during three feet high, you know, some people may argue with me there, but I thought that the lyricism and MC and took another level up and particularly because of the complexity of what they were doing in this record as well. The storytelling, uh, the difference the switching up of the flows and the topics that they covered as well. 
You know, we talked about that Millie uh, pulled a pistol on Santa, and I'll get to that in a second as I go through my highlights. Amazing and inventive writing, and something that you think about, like, at that time, there weren't many rappers that were doing things. I mean, yeah, there were stories being told, but the subject matter of some of these stories or things, what they were doing in their stories is something that people didn't do before. You know, their formats that they were following that people weren't doing, and that done. So now we get into my highlights. Highlights here, of course, First of all, the first single, Roller Skating Jam Named Saturdays, featuring Q-Tip. <laughs> this is an incredible track, man. The thing that I always loved about the relationship between Tribe Called Quest and Dayla is it was almost like when you're in a family and you have two cousins together and sets of cousins, and those cousins, their mother, you know, they they were siblings, you know, like maybe you have two sisters or two brothers, and they're particularly maybe a little bit closer than the others, so you spend a lot of time together. I always love the synergy between the two groups, between De La Soul and the Tribe Called Quest. And you can definitely tell that, you know, Q-Tip, they were some of probably his favorite collaborators in that early, those early times. Out of the Native Tongues group, the folks that he wanted to collaborate the most with. I mean, you heard it on Buddy on the remix. Um, when they've toured together, you've seen that it's just really like almost like a seamless sort of synergy between the two of them. But that is a jam. Biddy's in the BK Lounge is an interesting... <laughs> is <laughs> a really interesting song considering the fact that it's all based around something in a Burger King. Again, we're talking about inventive songwriting. When you're going through stories being told, who else is writing about an employee's experience with a customer in a Burger King? Nobody, really. <laughs> Nobody. Another highlight for me, Afro Connections at the High Five, getting at the base of what the message they were trying to send in this album. It was fighting against the hippie, stereotype and also fighting against the forces of gangster rap trying to encroach on their territory here in the game sort of that dual you know battle that they had going on and what they were trying to accomplish here millie pulled a pistol on santa this wow i think i listened to this about two or three times back to back to back when i first pulled it out to listen to get ready to review for this this review and I was blown away at um, the story, first of all, about Millie and her father. One of the things that struck me about it was really the point in the song where she talked about, you know, she went and told people that she was having problems, that this is what her father was doing to her, but nobody listened to her. Almost like art and Matavi life. And we talk about the problems now, like we, these things that we have as far as like, protecting black women and the things that black women have felt like they haven't been protected by men in society as much as they truly should be. And this sort of goes back to now you take this 30 years back where even more so back then, that was probably the narrative. And this is a situation where she took things into her own hands. And just like that, it's over, but very, very inventive song, very creative and subject matter that some people probably really wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be willing to take on. The one thing that I do have to give the Native Tongues overall as a collective is that they're willing to make songs that may make people a little bit of uncomfortable. Tribe was very good at doing that as well. Black Sheep was very good at doing that as well. Another one, favorites is Past the Plugs. I love the beat. I love the verses on there as well. The hook kind of really sets up the song for me as well. Uh, gotta love ring 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 the to me i think that ring 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 is really what sets up for the album to close very strongly in my opinion getting into those last couple of tracks 
Swing a locate fanatic of the B word, which features his dress of black sheep who does his thing on this. And then keeping the faith, the very last track on the album before they head into the skit, which closes everything out. This is about to me is about as strong as an album closeout within the last five to six tracks here that I've heard in some time from that particular era. Cause I always like to say that you can lose an audience by how you close out your album. And if you don't close it out strong, it could take your album from being a nine to probably about a seven and a half or seven. But I thought they closed out the album particularly well with those songs in particular with ring, ring, ring with swing locate fanatic of the B word and keeping the faith, a very strong way to close out the album. But overall to me, didn't really have any lowlights. The only lowlights that I had is it being <laughs> 30 years later. I know the skits were put there for entertainment value and creatively the things you're trying to accomplish. I thought that they could have left a few of the skits out. Like I think the skits with the homeboys listening to the album, if they could have left those skits out because after a while, like after the third skit, I'm just sitting there like, okay, so you beating this dude up because you, he likes the album you think is whack and what's going on like this is honestly to me i think a waste of time if i did have a low light it would have been those skits of the homeboys listening to the album but the radio show thing i think kind of worked because it kind of brings you back to you know those days when i used to listen to the radio and when you know people would call on the radio and give shot shout outs and when you would hear artists giving drops for their on your favorite radio station and who you're listening to that sort of brought back some fond memories to me i could have kept the radio station skits in the other ones I could have done without like honestly but you know I thought that after a while 27 tracks and you see the runtime of 73 minutes I thought I was gonna get tired of listening to it for a while but if I do have to say anything about the skits and then also those little interludes and these tracks like one minute one minute 56 seconds you see that and kicked out of the house you see that into uh, not over until the fat lady plays the demo these sort of like mini tracks the one thing that they do is they sort of break up the album perfectly and then hit you with a track that comes back and grabs you right back in because you hear those knocking bass lines and those samples and those drums that bring you right back into it. I do have to give that props. So the homeboy skits, mm, not really a big fan, but everything else though, I'm good with. I'm really, really good with. You know, one of the things that, I found very interesting, though, in reading a article from 2016 that Prince Paul gave about the 25th anniversary of De La Soul is Dead. And he talks about how the praise for the production that stood out during that particular time. And I mentioned about the equipment that they were using, that what they were accomplishing with the equipment that they had back then is, is crazy. Because now you can sample and you can sample and it's fairly easy considering what you have to make it with as opposed to what they were using back then, ASRs and MPCs and SP-1200s. Now you can do it at a drop of a hat, but it was sort of like, as Prince Paul said in this article on the Medium, which will be in the show notes, says they had the experience of being able to make the first album to give them a better idea how they wanted to use their equipment. They were using that equipment and knew how to use it better. What they were using is that they were using an Akai S900, you know, everyone who's been in the game for years and years can say it's a classic piece of equipment. Uh, SP12, not the 1200. The difference between those two is that the 1200 has the disc drive. The 12 did not. And a Casio SK5. They used it on three feet high and rising, 
and also used that here on De La Soul is Dead. They used that and also gained a better understanding of how to use that equipment, how to be able to craft a better album, and De La Soul is Dead. And as they mentioned, Prince Paul says that they were very supportive because Three Feet High came as a surprise to everybody. It literally hit a lot of people out of nowhere. And after this, and then basically it was like, as Prince Paul said, that Tommy Boy told them, they said, you guys know what you're doing. We trust you. Make those records you make. <laughs> and that's the title of the article. Make those records that you make. If any of us as fans of De La Soul could say anything, we would say to them, hey, we don't care about what you guys do. Hey, records label supports you. They try to take your stuff off. You know, they do whatever they want to do not to make your records available so that we can't stream them and support you. Then, hey, the only thing we care about is for you to make those records that you make. And we saw that with the Kickstarter that they did for the album, the anonymous nobody that came out a couple of years ago. Fans came out in droves and supported them and got that album funded and got them to be able to put it out. So now I'm going to get into the final verdict, the final test. till we see what kind of classic do I think it is? Is it a certified classic, borderline classic, a classic just in his time or not a classic at all? And um, for those of y'all who remember last year when we did the Three Feet High and Rising review, I understand how important Three Feet High and Rising was in the scheme of things. You know, it's been in the National Registry of Historic, you know, in the Library of Congress for it being a significant work of art and um, groundbreaking. And But to me, my response at that time, I think, was a little tepid. And I think because... You know, to me, after listening for, to it after 30 years, like not disputing that it's a great piece of work. I just I know that I've heard better from them. And um, historically, things beside everything else, when to me, when it comes to the two albums together, I don't think there's a question to me. I think that De La Soul is Dead of Dead is the better album than between that and Three Feet High and Rising. And some people agree with me. A lot of people will not. But that being said, I do think that this is a certified classic. Uh, I think that this is yet another standout performance by De La on another record that you can look in their first four albums. You could make the argument that all four of those are certified classic albums. Now, some people will give you a little bit of pushback, maybe on this, probably on Balloon Mind State, probably on Stakes is High, but you could make the argument. And... You can make the argument and no one will call you crazy for saying that, hey, this De La's first four albums classics, you could probably get a nice percentage of people that you ask and probably will say yes. And if they don't agree with you 100% on all four, they may give you three out of four. Even if you're going to say two out of four, you don't run into so many groups out there that will put out albums in their catalog that will have possibility of four classics the first four albums they put out it's not many of them it's few of them out there but not many of them but certified classic without a shadow of a doubt this album was one of the first in the source to get a five mic rating the first time around they got this right it was selected as one of the 100 best rap albums that the source had in their 10 year anniversary celebration in 1998 this has been an album that you know a lot of people will point to in regards to where it stood as reports to them and the gangster rap scene starting to come around as being a pivotal album, really sort of to, I guess, be the last shit on the horizon before a new world dawned. So I give it its props as a certified classic. So there we are, y'all. De La Soul is dead. 
released 1991, May 14th. Please make sure y'all go check it out now. It's not available on your regular streaming sources, but if you peruse on Google or peruse on YouTube and maybe a couple other different places, you can find it. I found it and found it intact and in its entirety and in order. So please make sure y'all go check it out, man. Let's hope for God's sakes that Tommy boy gets off of this shit and allows De La Soul's catalog, the whole catalog to be available online streaming for all of its fans. And that is going to wrap up yet another edition of the vault. Please make sure you are checking us out on our new host on red circle. You can also download stream and subscribe to the vault classic music reviews on any one of our streaming sources. If you go to the link in our bio and any one of our pages of social media, you'll be able to get to our link tree. It will have all of our social media pages and also all of our streaming sources as well, where you can check us out. Please make sure you go visit us on social media. You can catch us on Instagram on at vault CMR podcast on Twitter at vault classic and on Facebook and YouTube. You can check us out on the vault classic music reviews, search us there. You can like the Facebook page. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel, interact with us on social media, comment, leave your likes, give your support. We do it here all for you. We appreciate the support. And if you have a friend, tell a friend and make sure that that friend tells a friend always remember to keep your headphones on and your music loud, but not too loud. And as we close, we like to remind everyone to dream big because dreams are the basis for creation. Always create, motivate, and elevate because you were never destined or created to stay stationary in this life. And on that note, we say peace. Thank you for listening and coming into The Vault. Please subscribe and follow us on Facebook at IV Creative and Instagram at IVECRE8.